Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 287, and today we're talking all about scouting. Our guest is Justin Crosley from rockslide.com. Justin joins us to talk about his scouting strategies, both e-scouting as well as boots on the ground scouting, more specifically for out-of-state hunts. So whether you're e-scouting or planning a bonsai scouting trip to an out-of-state location that's maybe new to you, you will learn something from Justin in this episode. We talk about what he looks for in e-scouting, as well as how he plans those out-of-state trips when he has a limited time. So if you're interested in getting into new country, getting boots on the ground, finding glassing points, understanding glassing strategies, and much more, you will no doubt learn in this episode. As always, guys, we thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate the support and the feedback. You can always contact us directly with any question, podcast suggestion, or anything like that via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. But for now, let's go ahead and dive right into this episode with Justin Crossley. Justin, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, I would say overdue, man. I can't believe we actually haven't had you on. We've talked with Robbie a couple times and things like that, but uh, glad to get you on. For listeners who may not recognize the name, give us a bit of introduction, background, context for who you are. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm Justin Crosley. Uh, work for Rockslide. I have uh, been doing, I work as Robbie's assistant editor, so all of the articles that you see published on the site go through me for the first uh, clean up and, and all the SEO work and things like that. And then Robbie will do like a final read of the, of the articles and then I publish them. So, um, I've been doing that for a few years, grew up in Western Washington, hunting mostly like on this side, doing blacktail muzzleloader hunts and things like that. And then over the last 10 years or so have, uh, been, you know, hunting more and more States, uh, mostly backpack hunting, but I do just about anything bird hunting to to backcountry hunting and everything in between yeah i'm uh this is like not something i was planning on asking you but now i'm just curious it, for i guess for listeners we said robbie it's robbie denning if you oh, didn't yeah. know um and again we've had him on the podcast and obviously he's uh, instrumental there at rock slide but what has it been like kind of working with robbie learning from him has part of your mule deer bug uh kind of the result of him rubbing off on you. I'm just kind of curious what it's like to kind of work with him a bit. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Uh, you know, talking with him and stuff, it gets you like, I don't think you can talk to him about deer hunting and not get excited about it. Cause he's always, you know, he's always like really, really energetic and really bringing it. And then, uh, I was able to do actually do a late season hunt with him here a couple of years back and I didn't get a deer, but it was still really fun. But I, I spent the night at his place there going into the hunt and if nobody, if you haven't seen his basement, it is so full of giant bucks. I don't know how anyone couldn't get like super hooked on mule deer hunting. I mean, it, it's unreal. So yeah, yeah he's, he's pretty, uh, he's pretty humble about it. Um, from what I've seen, cause I known him for quite a while and still had no idea he had killed that many big deer. Mm. <laughs> That's neat, man. His his book's neat, and the few times I've gotten to interact with him, you know, both afar, like on a podcast call like this, but even in person at Hunt Expo or whatever, like it's it's neat to me to see guys like that who've been at it for so long, but are just still so passionate. Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. Yeah, cool, man. So we wanted to talk scouting uh, with you today, both e scouting as well as on the boots, uh, as well as boots on the ground scouting. Um, to set up some context, and again, we're not going to focus on just this one hunt, but I think it's helpful context to know. Um, tell us about this deer hunt you had last fall, where it was, obviously, compared to where you're at in Western Washington, um, and then just begin to lay out, like, how did you even begin to put a plan in place to scout this? So I'm curious about things like, have you hunted this country before? Did you have any experience, any tips, any things like that? But I guess to kick things off from a high level, where and what was this hunt? So it was an early season, uh, high country hunt in Wyoming. Um, and I, again, from, from Western Washington, I'd have to double check the mileage exactly, but I, if I seem to recall, it's like dang near a thousand miles each way for, for me to get to the hunting area. Um, I haven't hunted it before. And so it was other than just the things that I'd heard from friends and family that had been in there, it was all uh, brand new to me. 
which of course makes it even harder because I, you really don't have anywhere to, to start. And so you're just starting out your scouting, you know, brand new from scratch, just like you would any, if you move to another state or anything like that. So, um, all of the challenges applied in this case. So I'm assuming then you, your scouting obviously starts to even put a plan in place to scout your e-scouting first, right. To define areas and look at access points and things like that. So, um, we've talked about e-scouting and in particular e-scouting when you can't put boots on the ground, but I want to kind of relate these two and understand how did you use e-scouting to even plan for scouting, much less the hunt, right? So how do you begin to break that down? And again, just to make it a more general context, whatever the species is, whatever the state is, you're headed to a new area. There's information out there. There's resources out there. How do you begin to break that process down? Yeah. So first, uh, you know, just like, I think a lot of us like to sit and just spend time, you know, scrolling over maps. It's, it, I can do that for, for quite a while, just for the fun of it, even if I'm not hunting in an area, but I'd say I start there looking at base map or on X, um, just kind of getting to understand sort of what, what mountain ranges are there and like sort of picture stuff. And then a lot of work on, you know, forms like rock slide or similar, just Googling other trips uh, in the area and, you know, trying to kind of see, um, you know, see what people have talked about in the past. Obviously that's a, a quick shortcut to get some information. And then um, once I started kind of like picking out, you know, general areas with uh, like general mountain range kind of size areas and stuff where I thought, okay, that looks kind of interesting. There's maybe some, you know, trailless areas or whatever. Then I just, um, running those, some of those areas by, uh, you know, guys that I know that have been in there. And of course, like I said, looking back at some of those old threads and things, you can usually find people that have hunted the same areas. And so then I'll instant message them or private message them or whatever, and ask them very specific things. Because it seems like people are way more willing to help. If you say, Hey, I'm thinking about going in this trailhead and getting, you know, maybe hiking up around this, this basin or whatever, versus asking them, Hey, I'm going to be an X, Y, the unit and what can you tell me yeah like where do i start yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right so i i think having and the same thing when you talk to the biologists um it, you're gonna your time is gonna be i mean i know my time is short as far as what time i have to devote to this stuff so the more i can kind of like make a list and and have very specific questions that are going to get me um you know, get me in an area with the best chances and with the shortest amount of, of, uh, you know, of learning curve, then the better off I am. So I, tr I try to make a list of everything, all the different places that I thought looked interesting. And I just start crossing them off until I come up with like a top, top list of places that I want to get to and, and actually go see myself. I'm curious. And I don't, uh, I don't know if this is a fair question or if rock slide, do you guys have any sort of affiliation with any such resources, but um, whether it's for rock slide or you personally, do you guys, do you use like go hunt or hunt and fool or Epic outdoors or like any of those types of resources? And I think Robbie has some kind of like scouting tools available, um, for out of state hunt. So any of those, like anything under that broad category have you used or found helpful? Uh, yeah, I, I use, I, I subscribe to go hunt, um, more on the tag side, you know, like as I'm researching in the very, very beginning, as far as like what I can get with my points. And, and those kind of things, just what kind of tags are available to me. And then um, from there, I, I haven't used like the Epic or Hunt and Fool or some of those others that much myself. Um, but I think part of that is because I luckily have a lot of friends and family that do a lot of hunting and have hunted a lot of different states. So I'll usually get it from the source, just like directly with, I mean, we have, you know, Tony Treach that works on staff that knows a ton of areas. My brother knows a ton of areas. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to get something out of Robbie, but he's, he's pretty good about keeping secrets. <laughs> um, <laughs> You'll be surprised. And, and he's got to be careful too, because he does do a scouting service. And so just legally, he has to be careful because, you know, like Wyoming, you can't pay to scout anymore. Um, up to a certain point, or I don't know what the, all the different rules are, but so like, that would be a thing. Like as a friend, he might sit down and have coffee with me and help me out and, and look over a map but then he has to be ultra careful about what kind of stuff he shares just because of the position he's into. So 
that's actually made it Makes sort of sense. touchy and sort of weird. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can see that. Um, you mentioned up one of the things we were talking about as we were kind of chatting through this podcast, what we we're going to mention is you were talking about the sacrifices to scout. And you basically said, I see a lot of people say they can't scout and you're talking about boots on the ground scout. And you continue to say, but I believe it can be done if you're willing to make sacrifices. So clearly certain things come to my mind on making sacrifices, like essentially time, especially, right? Um, but what do you mean by that? So for guys who have this out-of-state hunt, and whether it's you know a 500-mile drive or, as you said, a 1,000-mile drive, and they're busy, and they got jobs, and they got families and all that stuff, like just kind of speak to that idea of the guys who are thinking, I don't have time to scout, because you probably feel that way in many ways. So what does that look like for you? Like, how do you make it happen? What sacrifices do you make? How are you like very strategic and planning time and all that stuff? Sure. Well, it, it starts with making those lists and, and trying to like map out where I can get if like, like last year I was able to get out, you know, I knew I could break away for like two weekends and it wasn't even uh, like three day weekends. It was just literally just regular weekends that I could get out. Um, I, I guess I like, sacrifice by, I don't do other hobbies much. Um, so I can that way focus the time that I do have. Um, and then, uh, what, what I mean by that too, is, is you kind of, you know, unfortunately you kind of have to sacrifice maybe some sleep for those, those renegade weekends where you just like hop in your car and drive all night after work. So you can be at the trailhead, you know, late Friday night or Saturday morning or something. Um, so all of my scouting trips look like that when I had something like this, where I would, I would work, um, you know, work the, work my shift and I would just get straight in the car. And I even slept in a, in the front seat of my Honda Civic, uh, on one of these, which I won't ever do again. Um, that, I sacrificed way too much comfort and sleep on that deal. So I thought it would be worth it since I was saving a little gas money, but it was a really dumb idea. Um, but yeah, I do that. And then with my job too, uh, I work at Boeing as a, as a, um, airplane, uh, manufacturing manager. And we are able to sometimes like work extra, like on weekends or whatever, if we have to cover for something and then get extra days off. And so that's another way that I'll, I'll give up my weekend, maybe a week or two before to make it a three or four day weekend scouting trip sometimes. Yeah. And that's kind of a good little perk that we have. Dude, I like the Honda Civic as a sleeper scouting tool. Not only is it good on mileage, but you show up to the trailhead. There's no like hunting rig there. It's incognito. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah, no one expects it. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually, my, my, even my truck now is very, uh, I mean, you would probably, I suppose, maybe guess that the person is a hunter, but I don't have any stickers on it. I don't have off-road tires. It is very much looks like it could be just some grandpa out for a daily drive. So yeah. I, I got rid of all of that stuff. I always joke yeah. about that with Steve. I'm like, dude, you need to wrap your truck in EXO stuff just to make him mad because he's the same <laughs> way. He's like total sleeper. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I've had people like run into us in the dark, like where they just end up walking through our camp or something in the woods, like 10 miles from a trailhead and like recognize a backpack or a gun or something that's laying next to the tent and, and know exactly who we are. So yeah. I've started being really careful about that. Yeah. We had, we were pretty incognito on a rifle elk hunt we did this past fall and somebody still sent us a message and was like, Hey, I saw you guys were so-and-so. And I was like, how in the world? Like there was, uh, there was, no, I don't get it, but yeah, people are, they put stuff together, man. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's so hard to get, you know, good hunts now and good spots and things like that. So yeah, you just don't, and I don't want to ruin it for other people either. I don't want to be in a spot and maybe I don't even have that good of luck, but a few people know that you were in there and the next thing you know, next year it's ruined for everybody that hunts the area. Yeah. Yeah. So go back to time. Like, um, let's take one of these trips, one of the first weekends you did, um, and first high level. And then I kind of want to break down how you're spending the time you're in country, but you're talking about this drive. You're talking about getting off early, making the drive, giving up sleep from a super high level. What did those two, three, four days look like? Like how much were you driving? You're getting there, it sounds like, middle of the night or at the end of the day, sleeping in your car, maybe packing in. Like, practically, what does that look like for you? That, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, I obviously try to get off as early as possible and hit the road. And uh, uh, I don't even remember now how many hours it is, but it, it was a long, you know, 10, 12 hours, 14 hours, something like that in the, in the car. 
and I just drive it straight through. You know, you try not to take any breaks, uh, get there. If you have, if it's a dark, I'll take a nap. Uh, I know the one, the very first scouting trip that I did, which was early. Um, that's another thing that we'll have to touch on is I, I really like Jim Carr's tips for like scouting super early in the season for these kind of areas where you don't know it really well. Um, but I met my brother, uh, what time was it? I, I can't remember. It was, it was whatever the first day that we got there anyway on the, um, so it must've been Friday afternoon or something like that. And, uh, met him maybe an hour or so before dark. And we immediately throw, you know, packs are packed, ready to go. Um, maybe throw a Gatorade in or something. And then we hit the trail and try to get as quickly as possible to a spot we can start glassing. Uh, and it's a pre a predetermined spot, right? Like we know exactly where we're going to drive to exactly where we plan to hike to that night. Um, and then for me, the key is if, if possible, I try to set it up so I can hike a loop and, and be hitting as many, like we'll jump from one side of a ridge to another, you know, during like prime glassing for that first hour or so, or two hours of daylight. And then we'll do all of our hiking in between. Um, and just try to be in, in all the spots that I think are going to have the best chances of seeing deer or elk in, you know, just make sure we're not missing those areas if, through the, through the mid part of the day or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. Cause that's obviously key is you're dealing with such a limited time. You have to make the most use of essentially every minute you can. And especially as you said, in those key glassing times, right? So identifying those glassing spots, something we've talked about before, for example, is using Google earth or other mapping resources now that have 3d tools, but essentially kind of like scan around and simulate a glassing point. You can even account for what the sun's doing in the morning versus the evening to do that. So I'm assuming that's part of what you're doing when you're identifying those glassing points. Yeah, absolutely. We have, I mean, you can only know obviously so much from looking on, on those uh, tools, but that is exactly what I do. I have exact points where I think are going to be the, you know, the, the highest clear point for me to get to, um, with, with a plan, just like, I mean, I mark it on there. I mark glassing points and, and then we just, we just hike to them as quick as we can. We, uh, I'm typically never in good shape at that time of the year at all. <laughs> but I, I just, I mean, we, we push it as hard as we can to get to all those spots. Um, and it, we seem to be able to cover a lot. Obviously we try to get to, I'd rather get a little higher and glass, you know, further so I can cover more spots for without hiking. Um, that's another thing. If you can look over ridges and, and maybe pull out the spotting scope or, or uh, BTX or something like that. So you can see really far, um, especially early. They're so easy to see most of the time that you can kind of cover a lot of ground. If you get to those key points um, without hiking over there. How concerned are you um, on being spotted by, by deer or elk uh, as you're scouting? Personally, I'm not. Cause I'm, I'm talking like late June and into July. Mm. Um, I mean, I suppose you probably could bump something, but when I've, one thing I've started to do over the last few years from hunting, Washington is super crowded and you have people messing up your hunts all the time is Mm -hmm. I've started paying attention to their escape routes. And so even if I do accidentally bump deer uh, or, you know, they see me and they, they, uh, they take off. Sometimes that's almost just as valuable as seeing them in the first place, because then I know where their, you know, their secondary area is going to be because they seem to mm-hmm. run exactly the same trails later on in the year when they get bumped and, and you can find them again. Um, and so that's, that's worked out before in the past where we're like, there's a few areas that I know pretty well where the more crowded it gets, I know exactly where the deer are going to go to. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, that's good. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. yeah I was going to ask. So it, as we were talking about using e-scouting to kind of predetermine the plan for putting boots on the ground, where to focus your time, et cetera. You know, you always hear people talk about food, water, cover, even what you just mentioned on escape routes, things like that, that could identify good habit, what country may hold animals, et cetera. And that's obviously relevant, but it sounds like just as important, maybe somewhat more important in certain circumstances, and this probably varies based on the country, is finding the glassing point. And like, that's what's first key is finding good glassing points and then identifying habitat that looks good to glass, if that makes sense. So I guess like for you, and again, I'm sure it varies, 
based on the country, but which one comes first? Uh, I would say I probably initially when I'm looking online, you know, on maps and things, I'm then, you know, I'm looking at areas I want to see and then secondary, probably the glassing point. But, but with that in mind, I'm trying to find a glassing point where I can see as many of those spots without. So, yeah. And then, and then once you get up there, of course, then that, that kind of takes over and you're, you're definitely trying to, to, to mark those spots. And the other thing that I'll add is while we're doing that, um, I'm also like noting, even if I don't hike over to a spot, like I might note like shooting positions or stocking, you know, routes that I see that I'm like thinking, well, man, you know, it seems like the wind always blows this way through this basin or this hillside. And so I will start picking that apart too, because it doesn't do me any good to find something if I can't get over to it. Um, and so that, I guess I, right from the beginning, I start thinking about that. Like it's, it's one thing to see them. It's a whole nother thing to get to the right spot and be able to actually go hunt them. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So you're high level, you're breaking down country, you're looking for animals. And then that's what I wanted to ask was how much, not only in accessing country, like, oh, here's a trailhead or here's an access point or here's an escape route or whatever, but almost simulating that hunt and pre, pre-planning potential movement within the country, right? So if this deer continues to be over here what's the best way to get to him or what are prevailing winds doing or what's the time of day and it sounds like you're taking it to that level during your scouting yeah absolutely i mean i will on if if i pulled up my onyx right now it's it's covered with you know in an area like this that i've scouted a bunch it i'll mark every time i see does every time i i mean any anything of interest i have a mark on there and it'll and it will include like if I have hiked over to a little saddle to peek over another side and I know I can maybe skirt around a steep ridge or something, I'll mark that stuff in case I forget it. Or for years later, when I come back in the same spot, um, cause that's one thing I've noticed. It seems like the biggest value I get out of hunting an area over and over and over again is learning all those like area, like the routes that I can walk to get from one basin to another, or just, you know, to a shooting position in a given basin because I've had plenty of times where I'll spot an animal and, and then, you know, you, you mess around or you, you, you start taking a route, you think you can get down to it or across to it. And then you can't, and you're backing out and you're going around again, where once you learn all those things, you're way more efficient. Uh, and your, your percentage of success just goes way up. You know, the more that you can kind of answer all those questions, give yourself more options. Got it. Yeah. I did want to ask how your kind of storing all this information. Um, and you mentioned Onyx there. Is that you put it pretty much everything in Onyx in terms of intel, notes, thoughts during the scouting trip to use for the future or to use something else in addition to that? Yeah, I mean, I don't carry a notepad. I did that before in the past, but I tend to seem like I didn't ever get it out. Um, and then now there's just so many good, you know, there's good products on the, that I use on the phone. So I'll use uh, Onyx and make notes where I want to mark a location and have a note with it. And then I also just use a regular like notepad app on my phone that I can, that I can, you know, just type notes in and then it'll sync to the cloud when I have service and it saves them forever. So, um, that's what I use. So this gets nitty gritty, but strategically, practically, how are you organizing information in Onyx? Cause I've noticed over the years, I just have all these points, everything's the same color before they introduced all the different little icons for waypoints. A lot of the waypoints were just the X, like um, I just ended up with this massive mess and I'm like, was this deer, was this elk, what year was this? And it just, and you can figure that stuff out, but it takes longer to like at a glance kind of pull apart things. And so I've just been really curious, the more guys I've talked to, especially guys like yourself, you're covering a ton of countries, saving a bunch of information. Like, are there any practical ways you found to best organize that within the application? I try to, obviously the the good thing is that they've added so many more icons. So you can like, they have one for a water source now and they have one for a, you know, I parked the truck here and and every other thing you can think of. Um, I use those as much as possible. Uh, Colors don't do me much good because I can never remember, you know, any kind of, I'd have to have some kind of a key that would go with it and I would forget anyway. Um, But I do kind of maybe use a different color if it's like something out of the ordinary that I want to really be able to key into quickly. Um, But the biggest thing that I started doing a few years back is just, just typing in notes when I mark a waypoint. So I maybe will put a little buck 
symbol there and then say, I saw three bucks, you know, the biggest one was a small two by three or whatever, just whatever it is that I saw. And like, and then obviously it automatically saves the time and date. Um, so anything like that, that I think is relevant, I'll just type it in if it doesn't automatically save it. And I mean, I will, I'll mark, I'll mark the elk feeding, even if I'm not, even if I'm not, uh, you know, scouting for elk, because I don't, mm-hmm. maybe I'm going to have an elk tag in the same area the next year, or maybe so I can help someone that will down the road will help me later. So I try to save everything. Yeah. Cool. You touched on going back to timing of your trip. I had the question in here to ask and you kind of beat me to the punch, which is great. But I was going to ask, when did you schedule your first scouting trip and why? Meaning was that very intentional for a strategic reason or was that when you just essentially had availability to go? Uh, and you kind of touched on that and then mentioned, I believe, Jim Carr. And I'm not familiar with his stuff. Can you can, So can you elaborate, number one, on timing, why you chose it? And then what I think you, you said you mentioned you learned from Jim Carr on that. Yeah. Uh, one, what we've always kind of done is, you know, here locally, we, we usually just try to get scouting as early as we can. Once the snow gets, you know, gives us access to the high country. Um, and that was always more of a product of just, you know, dying to get up in the mountains and then, and then, uh, just waiting and waiting and waiting and chomping at the bit to get out there. Um, so we didn't really before, you know, years in the years past when we would do that, it wasn't with as much strategy behind it. But then um, actually editing uh, an article that Jim Carr wrote for us for Rockslide. Um, and he, so Jim Carr is a guy that lives in North Idaho and he actually works for Robbie uh, for the scouting service. Uh, he is a super scouter. Um, he's, he's almost scouting all the time. If he's driving to work and he sees a hillside he needs to look at, he will stop and jump out with his binoculars and run up to the top of the hill to go scout. Um, so he's always scouting and he's, he's amazing how much he can remember. Uh, but he wrote an article for us about the, all the benefits of scouting early. And by early that we're talking, you know, early mid June until the early part of July, which is a, is about a month's time where most people don't scout because a lot of people think it's too early to get up there and see that, you know, the, the growth is, is less and things like that. Um, but my first trip in Wyoming last year was, um, about two thirds through, uh, through June, I think. So, so kind of towards the later part, but as early as I can make time to get over there. Okay. Um, I'm not asking to give the whole article away, but what are some like from a high level or some of those benefits of just being there earlier? Uh, it's, some of them are, are fairly obvious. You know, I mean, the, the bucks are, are they're out longer in the day? Cause probably cause it's cooler and there's, mm. you know, there's more fresh feed that they're trying to get at while their antlers are growing, uh, you know, the fastest throughout the year. So I th- feel like they have to have more food there. It, it, it just seems like the bucks are grouped up more as, as the year goes later and later, they start to spread out across the Hills. Um, it might be because the, the feed is going to be more concentrated. So you can kind of get, seems like early in the season, you, when you find a couple deer, you'll probably find most of the bucks in the basin, um, generally all together. And, uh, it just makes it so much more efficient because you can, you can cover ground, you can glass quickly. You don't need to waste a lot of time. Like, like I, when I'm scouting, I hardly ever sit and like pick things apart in the shadows like you would when you're hunting. Um, it, it just seems like it works really well to be able to do that that time of year and just sort of like run through it and, and cover a lot of spots really fast. You find the deer generally are in the same area come September, October when you're getting there or you finding them in slightly different spots in June than you are in September. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, in, in the case last year, the buck that I shot, I shot in almost exactly the same spot where I saw him in late in late June. Hmm. Um, I mean, within a few hundred yards. Wow. So okay. I think it, it's probably going to be area specific yeah. with as far as like, you know, how early the snow comes off and the feed getting green. And then when it dries out, it can make changes. Um, but generally speaking, I, I have a theory that all bucks go to the spot their moms bring them to when they're fawns. And I think that they go back to that same spot year after year after year, unless something pushing, pushes them out of there. Um, so to me, I've seen, like, I've seen the same four point in the same exact meadow on the same hillside for seven, eight years in a row. And it, this will be like a case where you could look at a huge hillside and the deer comes back to exactly the same spot all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of seen that in the years hunting mule deer myself where just 
yeah, you can pretty much count on that buck to be back there unless he got killed or, you know, something else happened where yeah, he, he really got pushed and got relocated. But. Sure. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So getting practical on glassing and again, making the best use of time, there's things in there that you mentioned, Justin, that guys might overlook. And it's not that you're picking apart, like you said, all the shadows or looking undercover, things like that, but you're kind of trying to cover ground quickly, locate deer, be efficient. So number one, any other practical tips or specific, I guess, like techniques or strategies of how you glass during scouting in particular? And then kind of secondary to that, I'd just love to hear like, what is your glassing setup um, in terms of binocular spotting scope? And does that change at all from what you would maybe pack in for that same hunt two months later? Right. Uh, For deer scouting, uh, I'm going to use, you know, either eight or 10 power binoculars. I, I like Swaro ELs or, you know, as nice as I can get basically. Um, I think it's less important that you have super high quality glass early, early in the season because they're it's like looking at bears, bears. You don't really need good glass. Uh, I think the same with early season scouting, you could get by with less. Um, I bring a spotting scope, but only, I don't really glass with it unless I'm looking really, really far. Um, I'm using my eight or 10 power binoculars on, on, uh, you know, on my tripod and covering, just covering all those spots that look like they would be good, you know, sort of deer meadows or deer pastures or whatever you want to call them. Uh, as quickly as possible. And I just, I scan them. I mean, they're bright orange that time of year. If, if, if I don't see them, they're not there and I'm looking into the next spot. Um, and I just keep marking. I mean, if I see a really big area that looks really good and I didn't see any deer, I might even mark that on Onyx and then, and just know like, Hey, you know, if I get back through that area, I'm going to take a look at that again later. And maybe there just was nothing there at the time. Um, but I really try not to spend a lot of time watching deer once I find them. I'll maybe take a couple quick photos with the spotter if they're like really nice bucks or, or whatever, and then just move on to the next spot because you're trying to get as much information about that area as fast as you can, you know, so, so you can sort of cross areas off or log them in. It's like, okay, I got one, two, three, four, five option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. What do you, do you breaking a day down obviously it's uh it can be important to be there early or later with more feeding activity um, versus deer bedded midday do you do anything strategically to kind of make the most use of that day are you trying to move more midday do you still find that there tend to be up midday and visible because it's earlier anything to do with kind of timing through the day yeah uh well the first thing that i do is and we tend to do this for hunting too, but for sure scouting is I give up comfort when it comes to like where I sleep. Uh, most of the time scouting, I don't even set up my tarp or tent or anything. I just bring super light stuff so I can just throw my sleeping bag out exactly where I want to glass in the morning. Um, so that's the first thing I think you have to be, you can't be hiking obviously to and from camp when you need to be glassing. So either you get up really early and hike in the dark or just to me, it's smarter to just throw my sleeping bag down next to a tree and sleep there. Um, and so I'll do that. Uh, and then I try to look things over real quickly. It's really nice if you have two people, so you can obviously cover it faster. Um, but I'll, I'll get, as soon as the sun comes up, I'll get a quick look and then I might run over to the other side of a ridge and look off, you know, try to have a spot where I can obviously look at multiple areas with little movement. And then I may come back and as the sun's coming up a little bit more and go hit it again, kind of make a, you know, couple little circuits of the spots that I can see. And then once I've glassed for maybe an hour and I feel like I've seen most of what's going to come out, I'll usually try to, if I can, if it's close enough, I'll try to make it to another glassing point and get one or two more spots glassed before you're past that time. When you think they start to lay down, you can watch. I mean, if it's real hot, you can see the bucks, you know, heading for the trees. So you can kind of tell, but I really do try to cover as many spots as possible while they're still up on their feet. And then, and then just kind of as throughout the day, I'll obviously go grab back and grab breakfast and then start moving. And it, if I'm, if I get to an area where it's like, okay, you know, it's only three o'clock, but this area looks like it's, I've got to look at it later on, then I will stop and I'll just sit there and wait. Maybe I'll go check on some water sources or something like that in the middle of the day. Um, and then as soon as I start seeing deer again, then it's back to, um, you know, 
trying to cover as much of those spots is because it seems like if, if deer stand up on one hillside, they're probably standing up everywhere. Uh, is, at least that's what I feel like. So that, mm-hmm. then I just kind of go back into that frantic glassing mode of covering as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Do you have like a, um, uh, time midday is it 10 AM or noon that you feel like, oh, Hey, this is, you know, prime time for them to start getting out of their beds. Uh, the only thing that I, I don't know about a time, but from what, just from what I've observed is it seems like as soon as the shadows shift over trees, you know, it's basically as soon as those bucks get sun on them again, it seems like mm-hmm. that either bothers them or something, but that, so it's, it's kind of like that. If I see the shadows shift significantly, then that's when I see them get up. And yeah, it is, it's probably around there, 10, 11 o'clock. Yeah. Um, and if it's cool, then obviously they will be up more, um, which is yeah. great. Yeah. You, uh, you touched on a couple of things in there, Justin, that again, I wanted to kind of ask you about a little bit more in depth, but where, so camp selection when you're scouting versus hunting and you touched on it there, you're trying to be as accessible to a glassing spot or basically right in it when you're scouting, what differs when you're hunting, obviously you have the, you have more concerns, right? About winds and about presence, about being skylined, about blowing something out. So if you break that down from a real high level, do you just feel like you're much more uh, proximate and aggressive when you're scouting and then less so when you're hunting? Or are there other specific differences you'd highlight uh, for setting up locations if you're backpacking? Yeah. With, with scouting, I don't have to be nearly as, I guess, thoughtful as far as, yeah, as, you know, you don't have to worry about spooking them as much. Um, and so I will be much more, uh, careful with where I choose to set up a tent or, or sleep when I'm, when I'm actually, cause ideally you have deer figured out where you, you know, you figure where they're going to be. And, and then obviously, um, I'll try to camp in a spot so that I'm not visible and obviously won't get my wind to them. Cause that would be the worst. Um, but yeah, the, the main, the main difference is like when I'm scouting, I can usually pack water. And you know, if I go down and get it midday or whatever, not a big deal where if I know I'm going to be in an area for a while camping for a hunt, um, then that comes more into play. I think where I know I'm going to try to set up my camp close to water. And, uh, even if I have to hike up to a ridge, maybe to be hunting in the morning, um, I kind of do it a little bit differently as far as that goes. Cause scouting, I usually just pack enough water to just keep going for the weekend or for the day at least, and just catch it whenever I can. Mm-hmm. We're hunting and I have to be more thoughtful and make sure you have, cause you can't be stopping and filling up if you have a buck spotted and, and you've got to go, you know, get in position. I'm not going to stop to go get water at that point. Usually. Yeah, that's good. I was going to ask as well. And this again, ties right into it, but Aside from the obvious things, um, I'm curious what changes in your gear for a scouting trip versus a hunting trip. So clearly if you're scouting, you're not packing your weapon or game bags or things like that. So besides those obvious things, if you were to say, okay, here's a three day scouting trip versus a three day hunting trip, does much change for you in terms of gear, what you're bringing, uh, how much of what you're bringing. And again, water's a good example, but Maybe it's, uh, there's other things to highlight there for you. Yeah. Uh, I would say gear wise, like the main thing is, I mean, I might use a smaller backpack, right. Um, when I'm scouting, because then I know all my gear, whatever fits in it is all I need versus, uh, having to carry out an animal. Um, obviously the weapon stuff, whatever your, whether your bow and rifle and you know, that goes without saying the other thing that I'll take on a hunt though, is I may change up my optics, um, where, if I'm glassing, there's sometimes, or I mean, when I'm scouting and, and uh, you know, figuring what I'm going to bring, I can get away with, if I want to, heavier things, um, depending on the, if I've got to go really far or short distances or whatever that comes into play. But um, the other thing is sometimes even when I'm hunting, I may take heavier as far as like, I might throw in a pair of 15s, um, especially later in the year when it seems like it gets harder to see them, uh, then it might be worth it for me to do that that's probably the biggest change that I would make is like scouting. I typically never would bring 15s just because of the way I think I can see them fine with my eights or tens um, and a spotter. But when I'm hunting, sometimes I'll double up and bring both pairs of binoculars and a spotting scope. Hmm. That's probably the biggest thing. And then in, in scouting too, it's usually warmer. So I don't care as much about having a dinner, like a hot dinner. So I might just do away without the stove totally and just bring cold snacks and eat that way all weekend or for three, four days versus a hunt. It seems like it's really easy to get discouraged and 
sometimes you just got to have a warm food to like stay in it. And, you know, especially as it drags on more than three or four days, um, sometimes that hot meal is like worth it just for morale. Yeah. No, agreed for sure, man. That's a good example. Are you talking about 1556 SLCs? Uh, yeah, I actually yeah. use the SIG. Um, but yeah, oh. yep, a pair of 15 power binoculars for, uh, yeah, whether it be Mavens or SIGs or, or Soros. <laughs> um, yeah. So gotcha. I, I very, very rarely will carry those scouting. Yeah. Um, depending on the year or depending on the time of the year and the type of terrain. I mean, I'm sure there's some, if I was coos deer hunting, maybe I would bring them all the time. Yeah. If you had, and you obviously you're using them, you've had good results with those SIGs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're, uh, they're really nice. Um, there, I, I mean, I've spotted bucks two miles away, you know, in some pretty harsh, like really snowy stuff where you're getting a lot of glare and it's really hard to see in the dark, you know, all the trees look black and the snow looks white and you're still able to pick them out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Swarovs have better color, um, which is what I've always liked about Swarovski um, optics. I seem to see color really clearly in them. And uh, so they're probably better. But for the amount that I use the 15s, the SIGs have been, they've really treated me really well. Hmm. Good to know. I, I don't know if I've even looked through those. Yeah. yeah I feel yeah, the same way, Steve. I'm like, we've literally been at SIG events when they've had all their stuff. And I somehow didn't know that SIG had 15s. <laughs> 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 Apparently we weren't paying attention. No. That's funny. Um, it was like a total shift from like very, you know, practical, strategic, nitty gritty stuff. But, uh, one thing that came up, I was just wondering about Justin, you mentioned you took two trips, two scouting trips for this hunt. Is that, you know, knowing that that's a big investment of time and a, you know, a big drive to pull off just one trip. Did, had you planned on taking two trips all along? Did you like what fueled the second trip? I guess is my question. Did you not find as much information as you wanted from the first trip and then i gotta really gotta take a second or did you just you made it happen you had the opportunity and you wanted to get back i was just kind of curious about that uh on that particular deal um that that's what i basically what i could afford afford time wise was just i could only fit one more trip in and what i did since i obviously logged in a bunch of notes um on that first trip my brother and i covered about five or six miles of of mountain ridgeline in, in the loop that we made. Um, so I was able to scout a lot of area and felt like I saw most that deer that were in those five miles of ridgeline, you know, at least in all the obvious spots. Um, and so what I did is I actually went back and scouted a whole nother area on the second trip. Um, and the reason I did that instead of going back to the first area was because I felt like I saw most of the deer and I didn't see in that first trip, I didn't see anything that was like, okay, yep. That is like the number one deer. I definitely want to come back and just, you know, I want to hunt that deer. Um, since I didn't see anything like that, I just wanted to keep covering more ground. Um, I went to another spot and, and I did see a bunch of deer, but I saw less and ultimately decided on hunting the first spot mainly because I didn't, you know, you know, I saw a few deer that were roughly in the same size class, um, in both spots, but I felt like there were more options and more areas that I could kind of travel. If I didn't find a deer during the hunt, I could keep moving more in the first spot. And so that's why I ultimately went there. Mm-hmm. So that spot was just sounds like more huntable, right? Yeah, it was in, I mean, that's the kind of the nice thing in that part of where I, of the state where I was at, um, compared to the cascades in Washington, where you basically like you cannot get up on ridges and like go from basin to basin very easy at all here. So I love going into Wyoming or Colorado or anything. It feels like I can just walk wherever I want. It's, it's so much nicer terrain in most cases. Yeah. Huh. That's cool. Um, any other, anything we didn't, I have a few more kind of questions, but I'm just like curious on any other tips that we didn't cover that you just recommend for guys who are trying to make the most out of very limited time for boots on the ground scouting, anything come to mind that we didn't hit? I think it, I feel like a lot of people, you know, um, like we talked before the podcast, uh, it's easy for us to like make excuses and decide like, okay, I just can't spend three or four days scouting. So it's not worth going out there. But, um, I think even if I have to drive two full days and I can only get like a morning and an evening of glassing in, I think that's still worth it because of the things you learn getting there and actually being there yourself and not relying on other information. Um, 
that like I'm willing to do that if I have to, if I have to drive a whole day, you know, scout one day and then drive a whole day back or a night back or whatever, I would say, just do it anyway. Um, it's, you're not going to miss out, you know, you're, you're not going to wish that you didn't spend that time. In my opinion, I just think it's super valuable to get there and try it. I wanted to touch a kind of a bit more on the practicality of just the travel. And I think this applies to guys who are not just trying to make a bonsai scouting trip, but maybe even just traveling for out of state hunts in general. Um, you know, another point we had kind of chat about before the show is even the component of like diet and hydration, um, and trying to really be physically ready um, when you start, which is obviously very difficult to do. And you're also putting in a ton of miles on the road, probably losing sleep, things like that. But anything in particular that you found um, helps. Uh, and as an example of that, like for me on out-of-state hunts, when I'm going from lower country to higher elevation, it's a pain in the butt. But I try in the two or three days beforehand, stay very hydrated um, just because I found it kind of helps me. I don't want to use the word acclimate further, but it, it prevents issues with elevation, which on a road, road trip is always a bummer because as you said, you don't want to stop, but you, then you also want to stay hydrated. So uh, just a practical like issue there. But anything like that for you, whether it's, you know, again, diet, hydration, just honestly road trip details of even out-of-state hunts in, in particular, little stuff you've learned. Yeah, that that's a good point. Um, that Yeah, that is something that I've learned over the years is – is uh, instead of stopping, I mean, I, I love stopping at Taco Bell and Subway and McDonald's and all and eating all the junk food or stopping at the gas station, getting their crappy burritos or whatever. Um, so I have to like really, really try not to eat all that garbage, you know, knowing that I've only got a short amount of time and I can't be feeling terrible when I'm trying to hike. Um, so I do the same thing. I'll, I now bring like two or three gallons of water inside the truck with me. So it's easy for me to just keep filling up my water bottles. Um, I'll mix different kinds of drink mixes in there to make it, you know, so I want to drink more. Um, I'm with you with, with trying to drink as much as I can leading up to it because I've actually done trips where like I, I drove all the way to Colorado from the coast. So I'm literally working at sea level, get in my truck, drive to Colorado and then hike into, you know, 12,000 feet or 11,000 feet or something that that's within 24 hour period. And I've never felt so bad in my life doing that. Um, so I've like learned my lesson with not preparing. And, and I think that's the number one thing I've heard from all the different doctors and experts is the more hydrated you can be at elevation, the better off you're going to be. This actually came through just recently, not even knowing that this podcast was coming up with you, Justin, but we had a a listener of the podcast kind of reach out with a general question and we've touched on this a little bit, but I just want to kind of throw the direct question at you and touch on it a bit more. Uh, it's, and I'll just read what he wrote. He said, when e-scouting, so e-scouting now, new areas for mule deer, what are some specific features you look for? And then he said, I'm specifically looking for more information than the typical food, water, and cover. So again, everybody talks about food, water, cover. Uh, maybe this for you is escape route. You touched on that. But anything beyond food, water, and cover that you look for when e-scouting a new area for mule deer? It, so one thing that, I mean, yeah, obviously all those things come into play. Um, specifically though, like to me, what makes a really good area is not just a big green basin that looks like it's got a lot of food in it, but it's in my experience, uh, good, especially bigger bucks, you know, little bucks live everywhere. They're going to be all over the place. Does are going to be everywhere. Um, I like to try to find areas that have smaller open areas that have feed with ideally like cliffs and rocks that back them up, you know, like you can find an area like that where there's, there's meadows that look like they would be, you know, the, the food that would attract them, but then also having the rocks and cliffs behind them. So they can basically back up against something and not have anything above them. And then of course, trees or patches of trees, at least nearby, those seem to be the areas that I try to find the most versus, you know, in, in all the magazines, you always see like the, the, um, you know, these beautiful, huge, wide open basins with, with, you know, these awesome pictures of mule deer in them. It seems like I never see those. I see them always in like the worst spots in just, and, and I've seen more bucks probably in those, those kind of those side areas where you think, man, it almost looks like a deer wouldn't even live there. Um, but I, I'd say the number one thing I would look for that people don't maybe always like on the obvious side is, is rocky areas. Cause it seems like they really like to back up against that. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense, man. 
Justin, it's been good. We've uh, covered some good ground. I appreciate it. Steve, I guess before I go into uh, wrapping things up, was there anything specific on your mind still for Justin? No, I was uh, one question we've played around with here in Idaho is have you seen, um, I guess it's going to vary by area, but uh, South facing slopes or North facing or East or West. Have you ever seen a more consistent pattern there of where you find big bucks? Yeah. I mean, I think just deer in general seem to be on a certain, you know, hillside facing. And I, I think it's, uh, in my experience, it seems like it's usually those Southwest facing slopes and of course it depends on the time of year because once those get dried out then you might Mm -hmm. start seeing them move around to the to the north side or whatever where there's you know the the feed might last longer Mm -hmm. um but what i typically like notice for each area is is once i notice bucks on one hillside i really key into the rest of the hillsides that have the same facing to them and then that's Mm -hmm. that's probably helped me the most is just like if I start seeing them on north facing slopes and I start looking on all of them. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Cool. Justin, appreciate the time, man. Um, just to wrap up, if listeners want to check out more from you, maybe get in touch on social, something like that, whatever you kind of want to share there, uh, let listeners know where to kind of follow along, things like that. Yep. Uh, best way is for sure is just go to rockslide.com uh, and get on the forums. Um, I'm on there obviously every day. Uh, and then I'm on Instagram and Facebook too, just as my name. Um, I think my Instagram name is like Crosley0102, but if you Google Justin Crosley, you'll find me. Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. Don't forget to check out those resources that Justin mentioned, as well as our new podcast archive. You can find it at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. There you will find all of the previous podcast episodes and browse by category, search by keyword, and much more. As always, you can contact us directly via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically.